Acts 27, 20 through 32. This is the word of God. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned since they had been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sell with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that I will be exactly it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the docks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless the men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, miss. Nailed it. All right. All right. Well, very good. Well, so we're continuing in Acts. We only have uh, a couple weeks uh, left in in Acts. We've been going through it for quite some time. We started it uh, last summer, took a break in the fall, and we picked it back up uh, in January. So we got just a a couple more weeks left uh, of this book we've been spending a lot of time on. Um, So in in the early years of Christianity, there were debates about things that we just take for, for granted now. They're just kind of givens. Um, one major issue uh, in the early church was about the nature of Jesus. You know, was he, was he part man and part God? Or uh, some would say well, he's actually 100% God and he's not really man. Or others might say he's, he's actually 100% man, not, not really God. And so that was going back and forth. It was a really big deal. It hasn't been a big deal for most of us. We don't, we're mostly unaware of that debate. Uh, the conclusion that was eventually embraced and that all Christians embrace today was a bit of a paradox. And, and, and what we should embrace uh, is that Jesus was not part one and part the other, and he wasn't uh, one without not being the other. Uh, the truth is, is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And, and, and in a sense, that doesn't make sense, right? Because how can he be fully both? But he is, and it's a paradox that we just need to accept, and we don't need to try to untangle it. And for those who can't accept that he's fully God and fully man, they're going to drift off into heresy. Uh, and a lot of times for us, when we tend to lose our way, for those of us who are like thinking Christians, like we're really trying to understand who God is, and we're really trying to obey and follow uh, what he has laid out for us to do, we're often presented with a paradox. And what we'll tend to do is we'll, we'll lean towards one 
to the neglect of the other instead of embracing both. And part of that is, is we feel like you have to, you have to embrace one. Uh, and if you can't, you can't really embrace both at the same time. Uh, and so a paradox that we might struggle to accept as Christians today, no matter what church or denomination you might be in, uh, is the issue around God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So God's sovereignty, God is in complete control and man's responsibility that our actions really do have consequences. And and depending on our personality, uh, depending on perhaps our theology, we will tend to embrace one to the neglect of the other rather than embrace them both and accept the the mystery around it all. So, So let's consider evangelism for a second. So the, the missionary, William Carey, a lot of y'all have heard of him. Uh, he received a lot of pushback in his desire to go reach people with the gospel overseas in distant, unknown lands. Uh, and at one time, he was up making a case for this uh, among his congregation, among other ministers. Uh, and one minister stood up and he said this. He said, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. So that's someone who, uh, in having a high view of God's sovereignty, would neglect man's responsibility. But it can go the other way too. So, so man's responsibility can be embraced in such a way that God's sovereignty is overlooked or not considered. Now, consider this. Some people live with this terrible burden that whether or not someone ends up in heaven or hell is on them. And, and, and to that, let me say this, if someone is not saved, if they're not reconciled to God, if, if, if they die and they find themselves in hell, that will never be your fault. That will never be anyone's fault except for them. Even if you sinfully withheld the gospel from them, that's not your fault. The outcome of everyone's soul is ultimately not in our hands. That's something that we can control. So, so God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are two different ways of looking at something, but they're not two different perspectives that we need to choose from. It's not an either or. It's a paradox and we should embrace both realities. And if we don't do that, we're going to be off. We, we might carry burdens that we shouldn't carry, uh, or we might neglect some responsibilities that we have. And in that cause harm to others and to ourselves. So here's what I want to do today. In our text, Paul navigates this issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And so what I want to look at, first, so I'm going to look at that part first, this what's happening with Paul in regards to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And then I want to pick up this thread of paradox and I want to kind of pull it and go to a few other places in, in, in the scriptures. Uh, so we're going to start with Paul in the boat, then I'm going to pick up that thread of paradox, and I'm going to follow it to the wisdom literature, uh, specifically Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Uh, and then we're going to pick up that thread a little further, and we're going to follow it to salvation and how God's sovereignty, man's responsibility works there. And then finally, we're going to follow that thread uh, and consider our own troubles in light of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So, but first... Let's talk about Paul on the boat and how it, how it regards uh, regarding God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. So uh, here's what's going on with Paul. We kind of picked up the reading in the middle of the passage. If you remember, uh, Paul's been in trial. He's been in court. He appealed to Caesar. 
And the, you know, the judge was like, look, if you wouldn't have done that, I could have just sent you on your way. But now I've actually got to send you to, uh, to Rome. So Paul is getting on a boat with other prisoners and they're going to Rome. And there's about 276 people on the boat. And Paul warned them before they left. He's like, hey, y'all, we don't need to get on this boat. It's going to go poorly for us. This is not, going to be, this is not a good idea. But they, they didn't listen to Paul. Uh, and things ended up going really bad for them. And so eventually they're at sea during a storm. And at this point, they're just like thinking, we're not going to make it. This is looking very, very bad for us. And we're, they're starting to think we actually might not make it. We might die on this boat. And so then let's pick up, uh, turn to Acts 27. If you're not already there, we're going to pick up at verse 21. And we're going to read about five verses. So uh, in verse 21, we read this. Paul says, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. So Paul's saying, we're all going to make it. None of us are going to die. The ship's not going to make it, but we're going to make it. We're going to live. All right, verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul has good news. Good news, everybody. The angel of God whom I serve has revealed to me that we're all going to make it. We're all going to live. The ship's not going to make it, but we're all going to live. Now, this was a bold claim for Paul because if he was wrong, it would delegitimize his ministry. Because in Deuteronomy 18, it says the way to validate a prophet is if he speaks into the future, this thing's going to happen. Well, if that thing doesn't happen, then that guy wasn't a real prophet. And so what had to happen, 276 people had to be alive at the end of this trip on the boat. That had to happen because that's what God revealed to Paul. That's what God had had promised. And as far as Paul was concerned, and he was right to think this, it was going to happen. 276 people were going to make it. The outcome was certain. So Paul knows that that God will do exactly as as he's been told. God's going to make it happen. The outcome of all 276 surviving is certain. But then something happens. The sailors, so you got a boat full of prisoners, and then you have some uh, centurions, some some Roman guards, and then you have sailors who are kind of operating the boat. And the sailors realize they're in trouble, and they're like, hey, we need to ditch these guys. And so they decide they're going to get off the boat and leave. And uh, and, And so anyway, if the sailors get off the boat, they're done. I mean, they're all thinking we're going to die anyway, probably. If the sailors leave, we're just, I mean, there ain't no way we're going to make it. So let's look at verse 30. So chapter 27, verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the, from the bow. So there's this sense where it's like, hey, we're just, we're just laying out the anchors. Get the boat and we're getting out of here. And so they're lowering down the boats and, and other people think they're laying down the anchors. And then we read this. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So it almost seems 
Like Paul is no longer trusting God to be saved from the shipwreck, but instead he's relying on the sailors. Like we got we to gotta keep the sailors. But, but that's not what happened. Paul is embracing the paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Paul knew that all 276 would be saved. And then he also knew they needed the sailors to stay in order to be saved. And, and so here's the reality that Paul was living out of in this moment. God will save us. The outcome is certain. So God's sovereignty. But we will not be saved if the sailors leave. The things that, that there are things that need to be done. And if they're not done, there's going to be great consequences. So that's man's responsibility. And it's not a matter of which one is in play. Is it God's sovereignty or is it man's responsibility? But it's both. God's will and man's actions are both in play. It says, J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, man is a responsible moral agent, <clears throat> though he is divinely controlled. <clears throat> Excuse me. Man is divinely controlled. Then he also, man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. And so this isn't a riddle to solve. It's a reality to embrace. And if we don't embrace this, our thinking will be off. And if our thinking's off, our actions will be off. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, in, in speaking on this issue, said that people kind of tend towards two ways, towards fatalism or, or freeism. Fatalism is kind of this idea that uh, everything's already set, like what's going to be is going to be, and there's, no, there's nothing we can do or say about it. And so it makes an error of embracing God's sovereignty while neglecting the reality that our actions really do have consequences. Now, the other error is what he called freeism, makes the error of embracing man's responsibility while neglecting that God is in ultimate control of the outcomes. So, so Paul knew that God would save all 276 of them, but he also knew that he could not allow the sailors to leave. And if they did leave, then they would not make it. And now, none of us really understand how this works. We just need to know it's true. God is ultimately in control of all the outcomes. There's no outcome that is outside of his control. And our actions have real consequences. And, and that's a mystery and a paradox we need to accept and not one we need to try to untangle. Now, let's pick up this thread of, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, that paradox, and let's follow it towards the wisdom literature. Because I think this idea uh, comes out not in one book in particular in the wisdom literature, but really putting all of them together. So let's talk about the wisdom literature as God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Much of the Proverbs, if you read through Proverbs, we get the idea that if you live right, if you live according to God's ways, then life will go really well for you. Life will, will work out. Okay, so, so you get that. Um, and then you read the book of Job. And Job, it's really clear in the first few chapters that Job is a good and righteous man. And that the suffering that Job endures is not a result of his, his being unwise or not obeying the principles and Proverbs. In fact, you can make the argument that, that the reason Job suffers is because he is a righteous man. <clears throat> so if you read the book of Proverbs, then you read Job, you might get confused. Because why, why, why do bad things happen to a, to a good man? And, and at some point, I think people can tend to drift 
towards a perspective on life that either um, goes towards Proverbs to the neglect of the other books in the wisdom literature, or maybe goes towards Job to the neglect of the Proverbs. And so, so what can happen is, is that Proverbs seem to teach us that you can control the outcome of your life, while Job seems to teach that the outcome of your life is totally out of control. And that's where I think Ecclesiastes comes in and is a bit helpful. Because we, we read there that sometimes life goes really well for the wicked. And sometimes righteous people suffer. And then it's interesting, there's, there's, um, with, with our life that seems to be out of control, like as you read it through Ecclesiastes, you see that life is a bit unmanageable. It's unpredictable, unmanageable, and it appears to be out of control. Another thing that goes through Ecclesiastes is kind of a side point. It's just really fast. It just goes by really, really quickly. But in light of that, uh, there's two things we should do that Ecclesiastes teaches. Is that one, we should relax and enjoy the good times when they come, because life is, in fact, crazy. And then two, we always need to remember to fear God and to keep his commands. So, for example, when it comes to parenting, each parent should give great effort in training up their children in the way they should go. But ultimately, there is no parenting formula that we can just plug in that will guarantee our children will grow up godly and happy. There are some great people who grew up in godly homes, and there's some great people who grew up in awful homes. There's some awful people who grew up in awful homes, and there's some awful people who grew up in godly homes. And, and, and the point is that while our actions do have consequences, ultimate outcomes are just outside of our control. So, so discipline your children, teach them, love on them, delight in them, and sleep well at night knowing that you're not the deciding factor in the outcome of their lives. You will do uh, things right and be blessed. You will do things wrong and suffer consequences. But God is ultimately in control of the outcomes. Now, let's talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as it relates to salvation. It's the third thing I want to talk about. Now, one thing that seems clear to me in the scriptures is that God is in ultimate control of our salvation. And here's a scripture on that. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So I believe that those who are saved were always going to be saved. And furthermore, I believe that once we're saved, we cannot lose our salvation, that we are secure in that salvation. John chapter 10, verse 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. Then Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So not only does God save us, but he's the one that keeps us saved. But we also find these places in Scripture, and it seems to put the burden on us, right? To, to, to be saved and to stay saved. You know, you know Paul writes in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade others. So Paul's laboring, knowing that, I mean, he's the one that wrote Ephesians chapter 1. Knowing this, he's trying to persuade people. 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And so if Paul would have given me his first edition of his letter to the Corinthians, I would have been like, hey, let's, let's edit that part. That, I don't like the way that sounds. Let's put something else that makes it sound as, as less you, Paul. And Paul would say, leave it. 
I meant to put that. He says, that my, by all means, I might save some. So it seems like he's putting a lot of responsibility on himself. And Paul also wrote about our salvation, Philippians 2. He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's worth noting that right after that, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So for many of us who hold, as I do, that God is in ultimate control of our salvation. Like for those of us who think that, there's a lot in scripture that seems to challenge that. Like in the book of Hebrews, there's five warnings about turning away from the faith and losing your salvation. So again, it seems like the scriptures are putting all the weight on man's responsibility. But if someone has a right understanding of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, then sometimes it might appear that they're relying too much on themselves. And other times they might appear fatalistic. Now, gosh, there's so much more to say about this, but I'm going to move along. Uh, so, So let me talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in light of our troubles. So let's go back to Paul. He's in a tough spot to begin with. He is a prisoner uh, on a boat in a horrific storm. He's heading to Rome as a prisoner because of decisions he made. You know, they said, hey, if you wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, you wouldn't be here in the first place. But he was going to be on that boat. So Paul's actions really did put him in this position. If he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, he would not be on the boat. But it's clear this was God's plan all along. So now he's on a boat in the storm. God has revealed to him that everyone's going to make it, but he still tells people on the boat what they must do in order to be saved. But they aren't really cooperating that well. And so what we take away from this is that the appropriate response to God being in total control of the outcome is not passivity, but hard work and diligence. For example... God is going to save people. It's going to happen. So do a lot of evangelism. God is raising up another generation to serve him after us. So be diligent in disciplining and teaching your children. God is in control of where your life is going. But you can still ruin your life with stupid decisions. And look, I've told this story before, but, but several years ago, uh, there was a man uh, on staff with the, with the campus ministry I was, I was uh, working for, uh, and he lost his son uh, in the war in Afghanistan. And later that year, he shared about how he was getting over or getting through the overwhelming grief. And I was surprised at the verse that he shared. He shared Psalm 119, verse 92, and it says this, it says, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And so the the only response that we can have in this life and in the paradox of God's sovereignty and our responsibility is just to be faithful to do all that God has told us to do. Or or as Ecclesiastes said, as as Ecclesiastes wrestled through the tension between what we see in Proverbs and what we see in Job, and it kind of came to the conclusion, it just said this, fear God and keep his commands. That's what you're you're left with. How everything works is a mystery. So we need to be at peace, knowing that God is sovereign and in complete control of the outcomes. And we need to work hard, knowing that our actions have real consequences. We live in a paradox. Paul said that when we are weak, that's when we're strong. And the gospel is a paradox. 
the killing of the son of God. Isn't that the worst thing that ever happened? Or is it the best thing that ever happened? Is it one or the other? Or is it both at the same time? It's both. It's a paradox. People made, in order for Jesus to go to the cross, people had to make sinful decisions and commit sinful actions in order to kill Jesus. But God was going to use what they intended for evil as the greatest good ever. So, so be encouraged that God's not counting on you to get it right. That, that he uses our sin, our errors, our stupid decisions for good. And, and, and his will for you to, will be accomplished perhaps in your greatest successes, but also just as much in your worst failures. He is in control of the outcome and what we do has real consequences. And in closing, let me say this, but before the sermon, we sang, whatever my God ordains is right. And the response song that we're about to sing in a moment is Jesus, I, my cross have taken. And if we live these two songs out in our lives, if these two songs represent the disposition of our heart, then we're living out the paradox of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. So may God help us to fear God and to keep his commands and that we would take up our cross and follow him. But in the midst of that, may we never forget that he is completely sovereign and he is the one in control of the outcomes. Whatever our God ordains is right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are in control of the outcomes and that we can rest in your goodness, uh, in your authority over all things. Uh, And in light of that, would you help us to not be passive, uh, to be perhaps even passive in such a way that might test you, but that we would be active, that we would be faithful, hard workers, and diligent. And so, Lord, would you help us to embrace that paradox, and, and may that give comfort to our souls, and may that give us fuel to live out all your commands. In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.